This is the official tapes, the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for the official releases. It airs on a bunch of radio stations around the globe, and we also try our best to keep the pulse on the psychedelic world of the Grateful Dead. Today, we are going to get into the DNA of the Grateful Dead world. My name is Kevin Noonan, and I'm a partner at a law firm named McDonald, Bain & Hulbert & Berghoff, which we usually shorten to MBHB, because who wants to say McDonald, Bain & Hulbert & Berghoff every time they introduce themselves? We got a hold of uh, Noonan. He came up on the uh, radar because some new scientific studies have come out about the history of the dire wolf. Noonan's website is patentdocs.org. He starts off with a rundown of what you can expect from his site. He goes into DNA research, what it's all about, what they've recently discovered about the dire wolf, what gene patenting is all about, why creating a real Jurassic Park would be a bad idea from a genetic standpoint. Also, is there a Grateful Dead gene or maybe Grateful Dead in some of our DNA? He'll answer those questions and could somebody actually show up at our doorstep, say we owe them money because they patented a gene that is in our liver? We'll find out on the official tapes. I always tell people if they have a four-year-old that says they want to grow up to be a patent lawyer, get that kid some therapy. Right? That's, that's just nobody, almost no one wants to become a patent lawyer when they're a kid, mostly because it's so esoteric. And so, you know, this isn't a thing where you're watching F. Lee Bailey or, or Perry Mason on TV. We are what is known in, in the industry as a, a boutique patent law firm. And what that means is that we just do patent law. Don't do anything else, just do patent law. Either helping clients get patents in the US Patent and Trademark Office, or defending them or going out and asserting their patents against people who are infringing them. We are unique in having uh, quite a few, more than a dozen, folks with PhDs, mostly in the life sciences. And so we do a fair amount of chemistry and biotechnology work, pharmaceutical work. We kind of speak their language. And I had a client once say that the most frustrating thing was having to teach patent lawyers about what they do. They don't have to teach them what a mitochondrion is, right? When they say polymerase chain reaction, we know what that means. And not only do we know what it means, we know more than just somebody who's watched CSI. And you know, nothing against folks like that, but, but in a specialized area like we're in, I think you need to have people who don't spend all their time talking to a client and then having to run to the library for six hours to figure out what the client just said to them. Obviously, we have to get an explanation of what's new, but a lot of the background work uh, that we do, we've done back getting degrees in engineering and genetics and microbiology and all that sort of thing. It's fun to actually see stuff you worked on come to market. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to do. And, and it helps us use, you know, you spend a certain amount of time becoming a scientist. It's nice to be able to use that on a day-to-day -day basis and not have to turn your back on it or just keep it as a hobby. I mean, first of all, who knows how the dead came up with the songs they came up with, but it was just a song about this person being alone in a cabin and the dire wolf sticks his head in and, and he lets him in, right? And I'm not sure you would actually do that in real life. A couple of years ago, I was doing something about dog genomes and somebody literally said to me, is this post, is this blog going to the dogs? Uh, because of the science bit, I try to keep up with 
a lot of the stuff that's going on. And, and the most interesting thing in the past 20 or so years has been the ability to look at genomes of animals and humans, obviously. The Human Genome Project uh, came to semi-fruition around the turn of the, of the century. But what's happened in the last five or so years, because as you remember, there's a couple of Neanderthal mummies, for want of a better word, that have been discovered frozen in the Alps uh, in the past 10 years. There's a guy, and I'm probably going to kill his name, Svanti Pabo. And uh, he's in P-A-A-B-O, and there's an umlaut or something in there, but it doesn't really matter. But he's Swedish, I think. I think he's um, Swiss. He's one of those. He's in Europe. Well, he started to look to see, and he's written a, a book on, on Neanderthals, and he said, well, first of all, can we get DNA from those that we could analyze, or has it all degraded? And in his book... He talks about what he had to do to prevent the biggest problem, which is contamination of, of human DNA, because it's very close. But that led to a whole development of techniques to look at frozen DNA. And that's where the woolly mammoth and the dire wolf came in, uh, because these are things that are coming out now as, you know, unfortunately, as global warming warms up the permafrost, you actually can get to some of these things that before you'd have to drill through, you know, how many feet miles, whatever, layers of, of ice in Siberia, places like that. Well, now you're actually a little bit more accessible, and you can get it, and you can actually try to figure out, okay, how did these things evolve? And with the dire wolf, that was just one of the things I keep track of when you get these sorts of reports, and they're scientific papers, and that's probably the place where I leave out a lot of the details, because a lot of this is really cutting-edge science and very heavily um, dependent upon computer reassembly and that sort of thing. I don't go into a lot of detail because you really don't need it. You just have to know, I think the readers need to know, that this is a way that they figured out how they could tell whether this piece of DNA is related to another piece of DNA. The two different genes in this genome are in the same place that they are in that genome as opposed to somewhere else. And the somewhere else may indicate that they're ancestral or they may indicate that they've had enough time to diverge, all that sort of science stuff that I love but people don't necessarily need to know. But with the dire wolf, I mean, you know, I'm, that's one of the songs that I think is uh, iconic uh, Grateful Dead songs, is that song. It comes up frequently on my playlists when I do stuff. And, and when I saw it, I was, oh yeah, so I'm going to take a quote because it's, you know, it's the place where they mentioned the dire wolf. Look, I remember buying uh, Working Men's Dead. That album was a real turning point for them from the psychedelia that they were doing in the uh, late 60s to that was like 69 or 70 and that and they put out American Beauty shortly after. So that's the stuff that kind of they're, 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 I think, in some ways, their best period. Evolution and, and extinction say, well, that, you know, everybody, every species seems to have its day in the sun, and they eventually go away. And sometimes it takes a hell of a long time, and sometimes less so. But uh, I think it's interesting to be able to look at those relationships to see uh, how things evolved and what, you know, what made it and what didn't.
Up until DNA analysis, pretty much you had morphology, ecology, that sort of thing. Okay, where were these animals found? What were the time periods, give or take 10,000 years, where they lived? Uh, what did they look like compared to other things that looked like them at the time or, or now? And so a lot of this sort of, of work, uh, ancient biology, was done on gross morphology of what the animals looked like and, and who was in the same habitat with them. First of all, the direwolf existed before man. Back in the time of the woolly mammoth several million years ago, that lived until about 13,000 years ago. So, you know, you, you get these, these fossils were known. And so what was known was, okay, we had fossils. Well, first of all, how old are they? Well, you know, you can kind of date them and they go anywhere from 13,000 to 50,000 years ago when you date them. But then imagine that you're looking at fossils and those fossils now, have, you know, you can probably tell if you get the right fossil, the differences, but this gives you just a different lens to look at those differences. We're gonna look at the DNA now, and because these were mammals, right, these were wolves, we can look at the gray fox, the Indian fox, the black-backed jackal, or the African wild dog, that sort of thing, the coyote, the gray wolf. We can look at all these, and some of them are in the same genus, Canis, right? And some of them are not, but we can look at this and say, all right, if we compare the DNA, what do the algorithms tell us? How closely related are, them to, are they to one another? You can see about when the divergence happened, and, and every time you had a common ancestor between the gray fox and the dire wolf 16 million years ago and between uh, the Indian fox and the dire wolf 6.8 million years ago. You can just do this comparison of these to see, okay, when did this break off? When did this become a separate species from all these other ones? And I think that that's how uh, this genealogy is done. In the paper, they looked at the specimens from Kansas and Idaho and Ohio and Tennessee. They actually have the lineage of the gray wolf and the coyote and the Ethiopian wolf and the Andean fox and the gray fox. These are all, you know, related species. And you can see how they're related and how long ago they diverged from one another by comparing their DNA. And that's the thing that the whole genomic DNA bit has given us an ability both for animals and for people to say when and how did these different species diverge from one another back in the day, okay? And now, of course, remember, there were five samples they looked at, so this wasn't like most things. You, you, you want to get a regular wolf, you get thousands of samples. This was rare, and so anything that's rare is interesting. And now it just gives you a different comparator. And, you know, I would hope, or I would argue, that the comparator is maybe more, more informative than just comparing whether this limb looks like that limb or this tooth looks like that tooth, that sort of thing. There's a, uh, an idea that when, when something happens initially, you have more of a, of a range of diversity that you can have than you would have later because the ecosystem is, is, is open enough, is broad enough, that you can have something the size of a dire wolf that would be able to fend for itself and get enough food and do all of that because there aren't a bunch of other animals that are competing, right? So, you know, you see that sort of a radiation of diversity and, and dire wolves are just one example of that and because, you know, they are kind of iconic, you know, is, is, and because they're 
year old and because you, nobody ever done it before because they were so old and now people were actually able to get this DNA they could get before. There are people who would say that this might also give you the ability to resurrect extinct species, but I mean, you get the fascination of being able to do that because extinction is forever. And wouldn't it be interesting if you could bring some of these things back? I don't think that's a great idea. First of all, we, we have wolves. In fact, we should, we should make sure that those wolves are, are, are protected. I think that the, you would just be adding another apex predator to uh, an ecology that is having a hard time with the ones it already has. It would be a curiosity. It would be something more to put in a zoo. And I think it's good that we have some things in zoos because it's protected some species that otherwise would be extinct. But I don't think a zoo should be the goal, right? I mean, I think that's one of those things that we do because we have to because we have too many people on the planet. <laughs> There's really not much we can do. And, and I'm not a PETA member with a, doy as a, bo as a boy as a dog as a this as a that. I mean, I, I understand the value of human life, but human life has a consequence. And I, I don't think that making more zoos for people is the answer. But we've all seen Jurassic Park, right? And I guess, I guess at the end of the day, that wasn't a good idea either. One of the reasons that the dire wolf story is compelling is that the common relative with a wolf is 16 million years ago. And that's the thing that it's hard to get our brains around. Because people talk about human evolution. It's like, yeah, around the edges there's a little human evolution. But the fact of the matter is evolution it works in million-year time frames. It's very hard to observe evolution except in retrospect, which is one of the reasons why people say, well, I don't believe in evolution. You can't see it. Well, you can if you know how to look. Um, but you can't see it happening. You don't see a fish with feet. You don't see the transitory forms because that's not how it works. And secondly, you're not going to see, for example, people who uh, have better eyesight adapted to using a computer. Now, if we were to have a society where if you had better eyesight to use a computer and if you didn't, you died right and you died without having children if that's kind of society we have then over millennia or more you might see that change there's a great science fiction story where it was uh, could you breed for luck and so the society took people who won the lottery and they bred people like that because if there was a gene for luck, those people should have it, right? And it, it, I'm not sure it worked out, but uh, as a member of the story, it worked out all well. But see, that's the kind of thing, and that's why it works so well with animals like dogs and cats is that you can breed them because we can control their breeding. You can breed them to have certain traits and qualities, uh, uh, mostly physical traits, and most of the animals that they breed are pets, and it's almost like that's the, those are the mistakes. They sell them, but they're really looking for breeding to give them something that is uh, the closest to the breed standard, which would be perfection. Well, you never get perfection, but you get things that are close sometimes. But the fact is, is that you can't do that with people. And so we don't have an instance where we can go out and say, okay, you're going to breed with this person, and then that's going to be with that person. Because that's in order to do that kind of breeding where genetics would have the effect that you just posited, that would be what you'd have to do. And we can't do that. And you know nobody would do that. So now what we get is in some ways maybe even better in the sense that 
We don't know what the breed standard for people are. We don't know what the best human is. And what the best human is varies depending on the context. And so what I think we want is as diverse a human population as possible. One, because if the, if the asteroid hits or whatever the disaster is, we may be able to adapt better than dinosaurs because some of us will survive. And secondly, it's just more interesting. I think that the Grateful Dead, like most bands, uh, and maybe every band, as more of the history of how a lot of these things happened comes out, um, you realize how totally serendipitous most of this stuff was. And it just happened to be, you know, this people, these folks, and that, it's funny because it's almost another order of magnitude. The same way you would say, I would turn around and say, you can't, you can't find a poem in DNA. You can't find a song in DNA. What DNA, what songs and poems and that sort of thing come from is that human social interaction that, that have us do what we do, right? And, and I think that obviously we have to have DNA that permits us to do the things we do. But, you know, our chimpanzee's DNA and our DNA is not that different. Right? It's like 2% different, and yet chimpanzees don't sing, as far as I know. I could be wrong. I don't know much. And, but again, I think that you have such a, a contingency, a serendipity. Uh, uh, things happen a particular way that if, if you were to redo history again and, and re set everything back to zero and let it proceed again, you know, there's a great Ray Bradbury story called The Sound of Thunder, about people who were able to go back in time and go back and, you know, to the dinosaurs and, and maybe, you know, big game hunting with dinosaurs, right? But the thing that was, it was like a, a suspended platform that you couldn't go off. You walk through the jungle on this platform, but you couldn't go off the platform. And um, the guy goes back and he does that, but he goes off the platform for a minute and he comes back. And he comes back to, come to this time the society was totally different, much more militaristic, much more harsh and everything. And he looked at on the bottom of his shoe was a dead butterfly. The idea being that, you know, he killed the first butterfly and that affected how mankind developed. And, you know, there's a lots, there's lots of holes in that theory in, in the real world. But I think the philosophy is, is very true that we became who we are for good and bad um, for reasons that in many ways were accidental um, or, or things happen to happen in a way that that you know people say well what would happen if Hitler had died before he grew up I and mean, that kind of thing um, yeah what would happen is we would have a totally different world but that's not what happened and that's the great thing about sort of time and life and stuff you don't know what's going to happen and that's the fun part and, and I think the dire wolf's a good example because here was this great predator animal and yet died out at some point because these things happen right I think any time you get to thinking about science and how science is advancing, it just makes you a little broader. And uh, I doubt somebody's going to come in with some dire wolf-related invention. But we do have inventions that are related to genomics and genetics. And these are things that I think any time that you broaden your knowledge base on what you're working in, or not, frankly, because it's all different ways of thinking about stuff, um, you'd be amazed the connections you can make, the more opportunity you give yourself to make connections with. I think that you learn a lot. 
about how things are, are interconnected, which is a good thing. And to, to, give, to give the scientists their due, scientists usually want to talk to other scientists and they all assume that you're where they are in terms of your knowledge. And so there isn't a lot of explaining because they're trying to push it. Whereas, you know, I'm more of an explainer because I'm not doing the science. And plus, you know, lawyers have to explain to our audience, whether they're juries or judges or patent office officials or whatever, have to be able to explain things in ways that, that uh, are effective. And sometimes that's why I say bad analogies make bad law because you do have people who, you know, talk about it being like chocolate chip cookies or this, that. It's like, yeah, that, or, 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 or the baseball bat exists in the tree. It's like, no, it doesn't. The wood exists in the tree. A baseball bat is something that a person thinks about. And yes, the wood that you make the baseball bat is in the tree, but it doesn't make itself, right? <laughs> These are things that, fortunately, they seem to be appropriate, and so I'll throw them in when I think they're appropriate. And, you know, remember, a lot of what we do for our clients is in this space. For us, it's uh, important to be up on what people are doing. Just generally, you know, it kind of takes the temperature of the water whether you're swimming in. Um, so you don't have to be in the water all the time, but you have an idea of what people are doing. And, and that, I think that, that that comes in handy. I think maybe like the, in the first dozen posts that I wrote, one of them was about gene patenting. And it was about Michael Crichton's op-ed in the New York Times that, you know, one day some of these gene patent guys is going to knock on your door and give you a bill because your liver is using a, a gene that they patented, which of course is ridiculous. But it got people's attention, especially those people who don't really understand the science part. It got their attention. So that we just, you know, and, and people, we got on people's radar because I think we, our, our point is to do two things. One is to write in a way that people can read it and understand it. Now, if you don't understand patent law, it's going to be a little tougher. Um, but, you know, I think it will work. I hope you can, number one. Number two, I think we also want to write about things that, that are interesting. There may be a 13 or a 15 or a 30 page opinion that we distill down at the 1,500 to 2,000 words. That doesn't mean that we're better writers than, than they are, but they're writing for posterity and they're writing for you know the, the parties and to make sure we all understand what they mean. So they write in depth and in detail, which you don't always need all of that. And frankly, if you do, you know where you can find the opinion. But what we were thinking we would do is have, because you can subscribe to the blog, it's free. And every morning uh, that we, we post, which is pretty much every morning except Saturday morning, you'll get an email and it'll have the titles of what we posted on. And if it's something you're not interested in, you just jump the email, that's fine. But if you are, you click on it and you go to the, the website and you can get that, is this interesting to me or not? I think that's in terms of, so far as it's a service, that's kind of the service that we provide because it gives people an easy way that we're keeping an eye on what the Federal Circuit is doing so they don't have to. <laughs> and I get that, right? I mean, people are busy, but the blogs really do provide um, a way to get the, the decisions in an accessible format to people who are busy and just don't, don't even know if they're interested in the decision or not. But within the first paragraph or so of reading one of our posts, I hope, they'll know. And if they're not interested, they can just stop, or if they are, they can keep going. But it's really meant to do that, and I think it has.